If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the very beginning of Genesis. I'm going to be covering Genesis 1 through 3 this morning. Now, don't panic. I know it's three chapters. I'm not going to read all of it, and I'm not going to exposit it verse by verse by verse this morning. Uh, so, you know, some of you are probably, uh, if you brought a lunch with you, then you may not have minded that. But if you're like me, lunch is still waiting uh, elsewhere. But we're coming out of the summer in the Psalms, where we've taken a look at the Psalms. Uh, you know, we covered 14 weeks, and we talked about you know, one-word themes through all of those. And really, when we kind of brought everything together in the summation of everything, we looked at how the Psalms, each and every one, pointed us to Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to begin a study that we're calling Redeemer. Now, we're not only going to look at Jesus as our Redeemer, but we're going to look at some areas of how He is our Redeemer, uh, what that means for Him to be our Redeemer. Some, this, this study is really going to challenge us practically as we kind of get into it. Um, but one thing that I wanted to make sure that we did was to take this first message and look at why. He needed to come. Why we need a Redeemer. Why mankind throughout all of history has needed a Redeemer and why we still need a Redeemer today. So before we get to my scripture for this morning, if I were to ask you all individually this question, I would tell you, hey, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which one do you want first? Most of you would say, Okay, some people want the good news first, you know, the eternal optimist, you know. Some people are the glass half full, some people are glass half empty. I kind of find myself going, okay, who drank half of my glass of drink here? But most people will tell you that, I, I, give me the bad news first, and then follow it up with the good news. You know, it just makes us feel better for some reason. And that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to make you aware ahead of time that I am giving you the bad news first this morning. Okay? But don't worry, good news is coming. So you, you can't say that I didn't warn you, at least warn you. Okay? So now I'm not going to be doing uh, kind of the typical uh, way, my typical style of, of ministering this morning where I read the passage in its entirety first. Uh, but we're just going to kind of go through a few verses and talk about the creation story. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you to bow your heads with me and let's, let's pray over our time together in God's Word. Father, thank you uh, so much for the wonderful time of, of worship that we had this morning, God, the way that, uh, the way that we could feel your Holy Spirit moving um, and, and stirring our hearts. Father, I just pray that as we come out of worshiping you in song and through communion and in giving, that, God, we would continue to keep our hearts tuned towards you in worship through your word. So, God, I just ask right now for everyone who is hearing this message, whether they be here with us in person or if they're online or later on through, throughout time that they're listening to this, maybe on, on the podcast, that, God, that you would open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to receive what you want done in us this morning, God, whether that be conviction through your word, comfort through your word, challenge through your word, God, whatever you want to do in our hearts this morning, I pray that that's what's done. Father, I pray for, for myself right now that, God, that I would be simple, I would be clear, I would be concise, and God, most importantly, I pray that your Holy Spirit 
speak through me, that I say what you want me to say and say only what you want me to say and nothing that doesn't need to be said. In Jesus' name, amen. So Christ the Redeemer, Jesus Christ our Redeemer. The reason why for that can be traced all the way back to the beginning when God created mankind. It was at that moment, and we see the account in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we see that as we're leading up to this, that God creates this perfection, this place of, of just pure awesomeness and, and just perfection. And he places Adam and Eve there. He creates mankind in his own image. And they have this perfect place, this incredible atmosphere, this place where there, there's no labor to their work. There's no pain. There's no strife. There's no toil. There's perfect fellowship between mankind and God. And God in Genesis chapter 2 just kind of opens it up with this. There's an original commandment. It, you know, it talks about the creation. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I'm going to give you just a little bit of a story, kind of leading up into this study that we're in now. As we were kind of beginning midway through our summer in the Psalms, the, I gathered kind of the staff up in one of our staff meetings and I said, guys, I'm, I'm really praying towards what God wants next for us on Sunday mornings. What message, what, what story, what study, what out of His Word, what does He want? And I, I came in one Monday and I went, I've got it. We're doing this. And then I spent the next week praying and kind of preparing into that. And then I come back in the next Monday morning and I went, scratch that. We're doing this. And then about after three or four scratches, um, we finally settled on this. I ran across a, a book that I read in 2014-2015, uh, written by Matt Chandler, where he, it was called Recovering Redemption. And, and that really, and I didn't even reread it, but but I had memories of that start to quicken in my spirit, and I, and I really felt like that's where we needed to go. So, I mean, we're not, we're not covering that book. We're not doing a book study on recovering redemption. But I will be moving back into that and kind of using that as a source throughout our time together here as we are looking at Christ the Redeemer. So here's the first thing that God says. In the midst of perfection, there's one command that God gives them. It says, do not eat of the tree. This tree, this one tree, don't eat of that. Everything else, everything else is available to you. Go, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. This one tree, don't do it. Guys, can I submit to you that out of all this perfection, one ask, one command, that's not heavy-handed. People seem to want to be really critical of God in this. It's like, well, I don't want to serve a God that gives me the option to do I don't want why he set us up for failure. I don't want it. It's not heavy-handed. This one tree, this one thing. 
And now I'm not going to stand up here and, and proclaim or try to project that I know why God put the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. I don't know why he put it there, but I will tell you what I think. Now this is not biblical, okay? This is, this is out of the new Ben James version of the Bible, okay? So here's my, and this is out of 1st Fleshalonians in the new Ben James version. So I believe that there is joy in obedience, I believe that we have a source of joy that we can only find in Him, and that some of that joy, that source, can only be found through being obedient to Him and His commandments. Jesus, if you love me, keep my commandments. So, Again, let's understand something that it wasn't just like there was this, I don't think there was this big flashing neon sign that pointed to the tree. You know, just like, hey, 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 you know, get their attention. This is not God being heavy-handed. There is joy, I believe, in obedience. And even in the midst of perfection, I believe that God wants us and wanted us to experience this joy that can only be found in His perfect will. So, as we look at 2, 15 and 17, I want you to understand something. That at the, the last verse there, verse 17, says, For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, this death is kind of a two-part thing here. We take that very literally, and we say that, well, man was going to live forever, but the moment that he ate of the tree, then there was going to be a physical death. That is true. But it goes deeper than that. Okay, that is a true statement that there was a physical death that came upon mankind at that point. But it goes deeper than that. There's another layer to it. 1 Thessalonians tells us that we are created body, soul, and spirit. But there was a death that took place immediately because Adam and Eve did not die the moment that they ate of the tree. Right? They ate. They didn't physically die at that moment. But I want to suggest to you that there was an immediate death that took place once disobedience happened in their hearts. Man was created, spirit, soul, body. Three-part being. In that moment of disobedience, there was a death, and it was a spiritual one, because God's spirit was removed from his creation. So a three-part being now became a two-part being of soul and body that was missing the Spirit of God, there was a void in their life the moment that sin and disobedience entered into their life. So remember that as we move forward. That's going to come into play at the end of my message. So we, are, hey, we were created to be a three-part being, spirit, soul, and body, and we're born into sin. We're born into disobedience. And I know it's so hard to imagine that this cute little innocent thing of this baby could be born into sin, could be born in the dark heart. I, I get it. But about the time that they hit a year and a half, two years old, you begin to understand this is a real thing. All right. And they don't stop. For all the parents in here, how many of your kids have ever lied to you? Mom, this is a moment that you could put both hands up in the air back there. How many of you taught your children to lie? Exhibit A, case closed, jury dismissed. So we'll come back to that, but there was a spiritual death that took place at that moment. So now let's kind of step through this, and let's just look at what the, what the creation story and the fall tells us. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, 
Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor, you sh nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows in that day you eat of it, that your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is the original temptation. This is the original moment of disobedience and sin. I find it interesting that the temptation that Satan, that the serpent presented to Adam and Eve was the temptation of trying to convince them that they were not something that they actually were. Now follow with me here. That they were not something that they actually were. What was the reason that the serpent gave Adam and Eve as to why God did not want them to eat? It says, you'll be made like God. You'll become like God. He doesn't want you doing that. Well, didn't we, don't we read just a little bit earlier that God says, let us create man in our likeness, in our own image? Adam and Eve were already created in the likeness of God. They were already like God, and Satan convinced them that they weren't. Church, let me submit to you, let me propose this to you. I believe that original temptation is still one of the biggest temptations and sources of, of drawing us away that we fight today is that Satan tries to, and he, he tries to convince us that we are not something that we are, especially if you're a blood-bought child of God, someone who serves him, follows him, been baptized, going after him with everything in your heart. Satan's number one tool and primary objective is to pull you away from God, and he tries to get you to question your relationship with God and the assurance that you have in the work of the cross. He tries to convince us that we're actually not what we already are. Does that make sense? I'm just going to keep looking until I see someone do this. Okay, good, good. Amen will work too. Good, okay. We're all on the same page. All right, now let's read verses 6 through 11. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? think that there's a really interesting shift that happens here in this passage. I think it's interesting that this is the first time that Adam and Eve's physical senses are introduced to us. Look at that. So when the woman saw that the tree 
that was pleasant to the eyes, that it was desirable. Then the eyes of both of them, and then they heard, and then they saw, and then they listened. Can I just interject to you that your senses and your emotions are terrible masters? They are terrible sources of what guides you. Could it be that instead of leaning on the Spirit, which they had done up until this point as they were walking with God, as they were talking with God, as they were fellowshipping through with Him in the cool of the day, could it be that it was this change in what they depended on that led them into disobedience and led them into sin? Could it be that it was because they began to depend upon their eyes? They began to depend upon what they could hear, what they could smell, what they could touch, what they could taste. Could it be that sin and disobedience are brought about even quicker in our lives when we depend on our senses instead of depending on the Spirit? And I don't think it's any different for us today. Because when we depend on what we see, we lose hope. When we depend upon what we hear, we feel that all is lost. If we can't lay our hands on it, then we question if it's really real. And then if we lose hope, if we lose this sense of a spiritual reality and a guidance, then we begin to fall away in our relationship with Jesus Christ because we become more dependent upon our senses than what we do His Spirit. If you find yourself at that place this morning, that's dangerous ground to be on. Because God is not defined by our senses, by our emotions, but it's actually the other way around. And this is the first time we see shame introduced. You see that? That, you know, we, we heard you coming again, that sense of we heard you coming. So then we hit. And I, Kevin, I'm going to be really, um, I'm, I'm just going to brag on myself here for a moment. Uh, Eastern Kentucky born and bred, and I went through and read that whole thing, and I said naked every time instead of naked. That's all I'm saying. But they realized that they were naked, so they covered themselves, and then they hid. Guys, whenever we depend on our emotions, whenever we depend on our senses, that will lead us to shame and guilt every time, because guess what? We will never measure up. There's always going to be something wrong with us, especially if we view things through our senses and our emotions and we don't view them through God's Spirit. When we view them through God's Spirit, guess what? We look at it and we're not happy that it's there, but we have this realization that His strength is made perfect in my... What? Weakness. It's a different perspective on it. All right, let's look at verse 12 and 13. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Understand something, that Adam was there the whole time. Okay? He may have been distracted. <laughs> if you are a child to a parent who's ever worked road construction, building construction, done something, they do something with their hands that you can see, you can't take a trip past something without them going, I did that. 
Listen, I, at, at around the year 2000, 99, 2000, I was in North Carolina working for an asphalt company. We still, to this day, cannot go through the state of North Carolina without me telling my wife and daughter, we paved this road. You know, if you turn down that way, go four more roads, about 20 miles, we paved that road out there too. I think that maybe Adam was standing around going, look at that bird, I named that. Oh, look, deer, named that too, honey. Adam was with Eve in this moment. But then he goes to say, God, that woman that you gave me, which I find is really interesting because as, you know, when man was naming it, when Adam was naming everything, he recognized that this, you know, this woman was flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. I name her woman or wohamin, which basically means mine. I mean, he was looking at everything else going, bird, fish, deer, plant, tree, ooh, mine. So, I mean, he, he had this, he knew that there was this element of fellowship, of togetherness, of one flesh. But then how quickly did that turn? As soon as shame was introduced, it was, blame came along next. It was the woman that you gave me. And then verse 13, and the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you notice this pattern here? God looks at man. What'd you do? I don't know. Ask her. It's her fault. Okay, what did you do? What happened? Ask the serpent. It was his fault. You notice how the blame game starts coming into play here? Because shame will always lead to blame. Because we don't want to be held accountable for what we do. Now, the next couple passages, I'm going to kind of skip over those and, and, and not read that, but what we see in the rest of chapter 3 is we see the consequences of this action. We see first the consequences on the serpent. He's you know, cursed to, um, you know, has no legs, crawls around on his belly. So any of you all who are snake fans, snakes are the devil. It's in the Bible. Amen. Just did it. Okay, snakes are evil. All right. Okay, there you go. But he talks about the consequences to the snake, to the serpent. And he talks about the consequences to the woman. says there's going to be pain, childbirth. And then, basically, for the man, he says that, you know, you're going to, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to, you know, till the land, and it's going to be a toil, it's going to be a struggle, it's going to be hard work. And then, for all mankind, we see this passage tell us that we're all paying a price for this original sin, for this original temptation. And as we look at it, because oftentimes we will make this statement of, you know, we kind of villainize Adam and Eve because they disobeyed God. And oh, how much better would things have been if they didn't do that? I get it. But how guilty are we of the same things that we villainize them of? I mean, really, of falling into Satan's temptation, of believing that we are not something that we already are, Depending on our emotions and our senses rather than depending on God's Spirit and falling into shame. How many of us deal with shame and guilt on a regular basis? And then how many of us try to project that shame and that guilt onto someone else as we blame someone, anyone, anything other than us? So I want to challenge you with three things this morning. Jesus came to be our Redeemer because we have no hope of being redeemed without Him. We fell into this sin. 
we fell into disobedience. And without him, there is no way that we can get ourselves back up. But we try. Oh, we, we try so hard and so much and so frequently. And, and I want to hit just three areas real quickly this morning to introduce to us three ways because we try to redeem ourselves. We try to rescue ourselves. We try to restore ourselves. And we do it, in, there's many more ways than just three, but I think three primary ways this morning. We try to redeem ourselves through ourselves. If I could just be a better person, if I could just work on me, if I could just be better, if I could just do this, if I could just do that, if I could train myself, if I could, if I could mold myself, if I could get better, if I could do more, if I could give more, if I could serve more, if I could do these things, maybe if I changed my attitude. Oh, maybe, maybe what I'll do is I will, any negative thought, any negative utterance, any, any cuss word that comes out of my mouth, any, anything like that, I'll put a quarter in a jar. I'm going to live, I'm going to live, I want to be the best person that I can possibly be. And you'll see, I want to make myself better. Now, I am not, not discouraging anyone to try to be a better person. But understand this, if you are depending on you to be redeemed, restored, and reconciled, you're going to fall short, woefully short, every time. How many of you have ever had like a five or ten year plan? You know, or at least, if you didn't write it out, you're like, in five years, I'm going to be here. In ten years, I'm going to be here, and I'm going to be a better person. And then, we think that when we get to these things, these goals, these objectives, we feel like at that point, then we will fix it. Let me ask you something. If you've had five, ten-year goals, and that five, ten years have passed, how'd that work out for you? Has anyone ever gotten to that place to where they say, in 10 years, if I do every one of these things, then I'm going to be fixed? Has anybody ever really been fixed? No. Again, don't stop trying to be better, wanting to be better. Be who God made you to be, but understand that you can't be who God made you to be without God. We have to depend on Him because ourselves, we can't do it. We've tried over and over and over and over again. There's a whole Old Testament of accounts of people trying to be their best version of themselves, and they still fall woefully, woefully short, and they have to, they, they need a redeemer, and it's the same for us. The second source that we think that, hey, if we can, if we can figure this out, if we can be restored, reconciled, and we can be redeemed, is when we depend on others. Maybe, maybe, maybe you think that, oh, if I could just find my soulmate. God, if you would just show me that person I'm supposed to be with. God, if I could just be with them. If that right person would come into my life, they would fix me. If you have that mentality, understand something. That if you're depending on someone else to fix you, then they're only going to be able to make you like them. They're only going to be able to make you as good as what they are. 
And I tell my wife all the time, she, we, we were walking across the parking lot the other day, and she, she was having a grumpy moment, so I don't know how I was supposed to take this, but she was kind of grumpy, and she went, I'm getting more like you every day. <laughs> okay? So I, I just decided to shrug that one off, and I looked at her and I said, Honey, you never have to apologize for becoming more like me. That didn't aid her bad mood at that point. But whenever we look to someone other than God, and we've all been there, let's be honest, we have all been at the place that we feel like, you know, if I could just find the, the right guy, the right girl, that right person for me, and that's going to fix everything. Things are going to be so much better. If you are single and you have that mindset now, please seek after someone who's been married for a while for some counsel. And I, I encourage you, find the happiest married couple that you can think of and ask them that question. They, they may laugh out loud at the concept that someone else can redeem you. Someone else can reconcile you. Someone else can restore and fix you. And if you don't have that, a lot of us have that mentality. But some of us feel like it's our job to fix other people. We have a little bit of a savior complex ourselves that we feel like we need to help other people be better. Oh, bless their hearts. Look, they're trying so hard. Oh, come here. Come here. I can't stand it anymore. Come here. Let me, me, let me show you how to do it. How's that ever worked out for anyone? Either side of that coin, looking for someone to fix you or trying to fix somebody else. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. And then the third area that we often look to is the world. So we couldn't fix ourselves. Someone else couldn't fix us. So let's look at the world. Let's look at all of these things I can accumulate. You know, this is the mindset of those with the most toys wins. Those that, that have the biggest bank account wins. That, those who have the nicest car, the nicest house, the most possessions that, that seem easy living is just what they do. It's those. That's what I've got to. I've got to have the best job. I've got to have the best stuff. I've got to have the best of everything and the most of everything. That will help. If oh. <laughs> I, I, I switched into acting mode for some reason all of a sudden. I'll just let you all know what I'm doing because I think some of us have been here. We may not admit it, but when we pray, God, oh, heavenly thou art, Father, if you would only let me win the lottery, God, you know all the good things I would do with it. God, it would help so much. We look at that kind of stuff to fix us and how many people have you ever known that they've been redeemed restored reconciled and fixed through monetary gains through things of this world I believe scripture addresses that when he says what what good is it for a he who can obtain the whole world but lose his soul you can have everything here but if you lose your soul you're still lost that stuff's going to do you no good That's the state that we're in. Without Jesus Christ in our life, that's the state that we're in. We're in the same state as Adam and Eve, being convinced that we're not something that we actually are. That we, our reliance goes off of God and onto other things, and then we begin 
to feel shameful, but we don't want to take the responsibility for it, so we begin to blame others and we project our guilt and our shame onto others or other things. That's who we are without a Redeemer. You can't fix yourself. The person that's sitting closest to you can't fix you. Parents, you can't fix your kids. Kids, <laughs> your parents are the way they are because of you. <laughs> so you've already done ruined them. Heard someone say one time that if you are a, a grown adult and your parents are not crazy, you need to ask yourself where you went wrong. And the world is not going to fix you either. There's nothing in this world that's going to redeem you. I'm going to ask the praise team if they would to come on back up. Now, as I said, the warning that I gave you at the first of the message is still true. It's a good news, bad news situation. Today was the bad news. And the bad news is, is that you cannot do anything to better yourself. No one on the face of this earth is going to be able to fix you. And nothing in this world is going to fix you. No pursuit, no goal, no nothing is going to fix you. But don't worry. Next week, we're really going to unpack the good news. So this week was the bad news out of the good news, bad news situation. Next week, we're going to talk about the good news.